to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. Now, series in Matthew, we have now finished the account of the infancy of our Lord, and uh, we are now reading today, beginning in verse 19, so 19, Matthew 2, 19. Now, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, Instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word and to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Concentrate our thoughts, open our hearts. Father, we lift up before you again the nation of Israel and ask that you would protect them as they go through this uh, devastating time of loss and war and anger and anguish. Protect your people, we pray. And watch over us, your people here. As we've been grafted into that tree, we pray that you would bless and strengthen our families here. And enable us to be encouraged this morning through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. No one knows for sure how many people in the world today uh, are from Jewish descent. The total number is thought to be about 14 million. Uh, 6.3 million, uh, the most, of course, live in the land of Israel. Uh, But 5.7 million live in America, the second most. The remaining 2 million are scattered around the world. Uh, Australia has the eighth largest number of Jews living within its borders, with about 120,000 calling Australia home. Of course, as it is with many ethnic groups, These Jewish people fall into various categories. Uh, There are some who are openly atheistic. Not only do they have no interest in their ancient scriptures, but they also deny the very existence of the God of those scriptures. Then there are Jews who refer to themselves as Reformed, as well as Jews in other splinter groups, much like there are major Protestant denominations that have divided into many, many different kinds of groups. But then there are Jews who are referred to as Orthodox. Current studies reveal that the ultra-Orthodox Jews are the fastest growing number of Jews today, the, the fastest growing group, apparently One in seven Jews are Orthodox. And at the current rate, it'll be one in four by 2040. 
Now, these are Jews who persist in their messianic expectation. They do this after all of these thousands of years because within their hearts, they do believe that the 39 Old Testament books are indeed a revelation of the true and living God. Of course, Christians agree with them on that point. But we would also say that the 27 books of the New Testament are equally the revelation of God. And those 27 books do not contradict the 39. Neither do they supplement them, but they are part of the same organic growth of God's Word. In other words, the 39 Old Testament books actually point ahead and climax in what is revealed in the 27 New Testament books. It's one long, unified revelation from God. Now, one of the things that the Old Testament reveals about the coming of the Messiah, which Orthodox Jews are very familiar with, is the exact geographical location of his birth. The Old Testament prophet Micah states that it will be in the little village of Bethlehem. The town of Bethlehem today is really a small city. Uh, has about 30,000 people. Most of them are not Jews at all who live there. They're actually Palestinians. In fact, that city is currently under the control of what is called the Palestinian Authority. And those of you who did the tour with us, know that when you enter Bethlehem, you enter with a Jewish guide, but then you have to switch at the border to get a Palestinian guide if you want to see the sites of the city, because that's exclusively their domain. Of course, with the war that is just being ignited on the Gaza Strip, that may affect other Palestinian-held territories like Bethlehem as well. But in the days of our Lord, it was just a small shepherd's village. And the chapter before us begins in verse 1 with a simple statement that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. In other words, this book is presenting to the reader that the Old Testament was, in fact, fulfilled. But something that confuses any devout Jew and certainly it would have been confusing in Jesus' day, was the fact that following this birth, you have 30 or so years when nothing more is heard of him. No one in Bethlehem continued to talk about him because he wasn't there. In fact, if we understand the gospel records accurately, it seems that anyone who initially heard that the Messiah had been born just kind of totally lost track of what happened to him. So 30 years later, when Jesus, now a citizen of the city of Nazareth, emerged in ministry, well, he's not associated with Bethlehem at all, but with this other village that's about 144 kilometers north of Jerusalem on Route 6, located about halfway between the southern end of the Sea of Galilee and Mount Carmel on the coast. In other words, he's associated now with an area that isn't mentioned at all in the Jewish Scriptures. He was called Jesus of Nazareth. And that was a great stumbling block to the people of Jesus' day who heard him claim to be the Messiah. 
Let me show you the evidence for that in the Gospel of John. Turn to John 1. I want to move you ahead to the earliest days of Jesus' initial ministry. At this point, uh, in John, when it opens the Gospel, the most well-known prophet in Israel is a man named John. We refer to him as John the Baptist, not the author of the Gospel, but John the Baptist. In verse 35, John calls attention to Jesus of Nazareth and points out to his two disciples that this is actually the Messiah, the Lamb of God. Verses 37 and following then record the initial belief of these two men who went after Jesus, men who later on became part of the apostolic company. One of them was Andrew, the other one was a man named Philip. Philip was from the nearby city of Bethsaida. And verse 45 records what we're interested in. After these men encountered Jesus, it says, Philip found Nathanael. And note how he appeals to him there. He said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, and also in the prophets wrote. So the one that we believe is the individual they were writing about, well, it's Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph, and Nathaniel's immediate reaction to that, he zeroes in on the Nazareth part, and he says, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The other passage we should look at is John 7, which, of course, moves us further ahead in the ministry of Jesus. And this is an account of his teaching, along with the response from some of the people who are listening. We'll begin in verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, which is what Jesus was just teaching about the Holy Spirit, they said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, the Messiah. But some said, and note this, yeah, but will the Messiah come out of Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Messiah comes from the seed of David, from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. And then finally in verse 50, you've got this discussion by the religious leaders, including a man named Nicodemus, who said, Does our Lord judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look. For no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. So you can see my point. The connection of Jesus with Nazareth in Galilee was not a reason to believe in him, but it was actually a stumbling block to people's belief. Because these Jews knew the Old Testament. And they were familiar with the fact that the Messiah's birthplace would actually be in Bethlehem. That's where he would be associated, not with Nazareth, not even with Galilee in a larger sense. Now, I want to point out by way of introduction that these people were actually doing the right thing because they were going back to the Scriptures. We're told to search the Scriptures and see this is what the Orthodox Jew has been doing to this very hour. He's looking for the fulfillment of his Scriptures. And this is what every person must do because it really is your only safety. If you are seriously considering the claims of Jesus as 
It is recorded in the Gospels. It is imperative that you search the Scriptures to see if what he did and what he taught and what he experienced actually fulfills the Old Testament predictions pointing ahead to God's Messiah. If it doesn't match what God predicted, then in spite of all of his popularity and all of the blessings that Jesus has brought people for all of these centuries, he is, in fact, no true Messiah. And although this is nearly unthinkable to us, he he is nothing more than the world's greatest imposter. I want to encourage you this morning to read the Scriptures as the Jews did in Jesus' day and discover for yourself whether Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah. Now, from my experience and the experience of anyone who is serious in their search, as you read Scripture, you will begin to discover that what you're reading has a spiritual tone that is unique in the world's literature. There's a high spiritual atmosphere to what you're reading. And yet, at the same time, it doesn't use complicated wording or arguments. It's generally quite simple to read. I think you'll also be impressed by the fact that the Bible explains everything that you've always wondered about. You will find explanations for why people are the way that they are. You'll find an explanation for why world history has unfolded as it has. You'll find an explanation for the current war in the Gaza Strip. You'll also discover that the Bible explains the mysteries of your own life and purpose, which has always been confusing to you. Someone has said that the Word of God fits every nook and every nuance of the human heart. But at the same time, you'll also discover a remarkable unity in what you read. The Bible was written over the course of 14 centuries by about 40 different authors whom God used to pen those scriptures. Now, if you take anything that compiles the work of 40 different authors over the course of a millennium and a half, all right, what would you expect when it comes to the harmony of those contents? It's going to be all over the place. All right? But what you discover in scripture is that the contents actually fit together like two sides of a zipper. And the more that you understand the Scripture, the tighter and the closer they fit. Now that can only be explained as miraculous, and one of the places where you really discover that is in the fulfillment of prophecy. In fact, this is one of the things that God holds out to us as the evidence that you are reading His very words. I mean, how... Do you know the difference between what is God's true word and what are false religious writings? This is one of the evidence that God himself offers to us. For example, in Isaiah 41, God challenges other religions. He throws out a challenge to so-called gods in these words, beginning verse 21. He says, hey, present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons says the king of Jacob. In other words, what what arguments can you you guys offer? What what can you put forth that, that shows your gods are genuine and not false? Listen to this. He says, 
Let them, let these other gods, bring forth and show us what will happen. In other words, let, let them predict the future and their religious writings. Well, that'll be a strong reason to follow them. Let them bring forth and show us what is going to happen, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or hey, simply declare to us the things to come. A few chapters later, God makes his own claim, 46 uh, verse 9. He says, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So read the Bible for yourself, including the predictions that were made in the Old Testament. You know, we have copies of Scripture in museums that were written before Jesus of Nazareth was ever born. In some cases, well over a hundred years before His birth. And they record those predictions about the coming Messiah. So what you're reading in your Bible today wasn't written after the fact. But long before the birth of Jesus... And if you compare those prophecies with your New Testament, you'll see that what God said about the coming of the Messiah was indeed fulfilled in the life of Jesus born in Bethlehem. Just read the Bible for yourself and see. However, that still raises the question this morning of how this individual came to be associated with Nazareth, and that is going to be our topic for today. As we continue to understand more of the miraculous things that God did in bringing His Son into the world. I want to look at this aspect of it. It's the fact that the Messiah was a Nazarene. What we have recorded in Matthew 2 is the explanation of how that came to be. Now, I'm going to give you three points this morning. I don't usually do this, but I'm going to tell you how many points we got. Three points. Two of them we looked at in the past. So I'll summarize them, and then we'll spend a little bit of time on the third point. You remember that this chapter records, as we read a moment ago, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But then he had to leave that village very quickly. For what reason? Well, the first reason why Jesus is associated with somewhere other than Bethlehem was simply persecution. It was on the human level of oppression and jealousy and hatred. In other words, he was definitely born in the right place. The Old Testament prophecy in Micah 5.2, which is referenced in verse 6 of this chapter, says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. That was fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And of course, there were numerous eyewitnesses to that event. Aside from interviewing Mary and Joseph, if you were a Jew in the first century, you could interview the shepherds. They saw the glory of God in the heavens. They heard the angelic chorus. They went to Bethlehem. They saw with their own eyes the newborn babe. God provided witnesses for the Gentiles with the wise men. The Magi came from the east. They returned to their home country. They saw Jesus in Bethlehem. So God provides numerous possible testimonies to the fact that this scripture had been fulfilled. However, as Matthew 2 relates, Jesus and his parents were then 
forced suddenly to take refuge outside the borders of the nation. And that's because of the insane jealousy of the ruling monarch, Herod the Great. This Idumean, half-breed Jew and Edomite who had reigned with an iron fist over his people for many decades. Herod saw an ultimate threat to his line in this announcement from the Magi that the Messiah had been born. Well, verse 22 tells us that after the death of Herod, Joseph and his family returned from Egypt, but Herod's legacy continued because he'd arranged that after his death, uh, his kingdom would be divided among three of his sons. I think I mentioned last time that he had ten wives, and his oldest son was by his Samaritan wife. It was a man named Archelaus. Well, Herod deeded to him the whole southern part of Israel, known as Judah, as well as the central part, known as Samaria. So that was going to be his ruling territory. Well, both Bethlehem and Jerusalem lie in that southern region. And Archelaus was already gaining a reputation as a ruthless person like his father. So verse 22 records that while Joseph returned to Israel after the death of Herod, he was still quite fearful about settling in the lower part of the country. So Matthew 2 is just explaining the fact that Jesus, in his childhood and really up into his adulthood, was not associated with Bethlehem because of human persecution. But that leads us to this. Chapter 2 also records that Joseph's flight with Jesus was not his own choice. I mean, Joseph didn't have any way of knowing what Herod was scheming. There wasn't any rumor that reached his ears from spies in Herod's court. No one was feeding information to the newly born Messiah and his earthly parents because very few people even knew who he was. So what the passage also tells us in verse 13 is that the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and told him there was this evil scheme against Jesus' infant life. This is the second dream for Joseph from God, and there are two more. Later on, after they settle in Egypt and Herod dies, the Lord again gives him a dream and tells him that those who want the child's life are dead. And finally, in verse 22, After it says he was fearful and didn't want to go back to Judea, the last sentence says, I'm being warned by God in a dream. He turned aside into the region of Galilee. So this gives us the second part of the explanation as to why Jesus is not associated with Bethlehem, but with somewhere else. The first reason is human persecution. The second reason is the fact that overseeing, And controlling all of it, even the persecution itself, was divine preservation. It was God's preservation through miraculous events. And then through the dreams in which the angel gave Joseph the information he needed to direct his path. Now, I hope you don't stumble over that fact. Uh, I don't think it's difficult for anyone to accept that somebody with great political power is so jealous of the possibility of losing their office because of the birth of a possible, possible rival. And that's because we know the story of history, uh, which has many similar examples of jealousy and intrigue and 
power plays. In fact, it was very common for centuries that when a newcomer came to the throne, he would immediately eliminate all possible immediate rivals. You didn't want to be the second brother when your brother came to the throne, because often you would get the knife in the middle of the night. And you can read that in Israel's history from the time of Saul and David, when David was a threat to Saul. But people do sometimes have difficulty accepting that God miraculously intervened to preserve the Messiah. And that's because people typically don't accept miracles at all. In fact, it's the Bible's claim to miracles that makes them stumble over coming to the Lord for their salvation. You'll hear them say things like this, well, how can you possibly believe that a large fish swallowed a man held him alive for three or four days, and then spat him out on the land. That's just ridiculous. Or how can you believe that people blew trumpets and they marched around a city and the walls just fell flat? I mean, that's an amazing audio system. Uh, It's not possible. Or how can you actually believe in a resurrection from the dead? Well, what's ironic is that people who discredit the Bible because of its claims to miracle in the end, do away entirely with the whole idea of God. Uh, People tend to view God like a parachute. It's the kind of thing that you wouldn't want to have to use, but if you ever got in real trouble, boy, you're glad it's there. But imagine people who want to have a parachute available, but their viewpoint was that the parachute they have is never going to actually open. Or imagine people living in a country with anarchy for hundreds of years. All they've ever known is fighting for survival and the strongest one wins. You know, people like that, they long for a central ruler who is just and good, who will unify, who will bring order to the country. But then imagine those people wanting a king, but then denying him any power. That's precisely the situation for those who discredit the Bible because they can't accept that God does miracles in human history. In other words, if there's no such thing as the miraculous, how do you know there's such a thing as a God who can save you from anything? Right? If you deny miracles, you've just taken away all of His power. He's either not there or He's completely impotent. Now, there has to be a God who can perform miracles by his own will if there's going to be any saving help for people like us. In a moment of crisis when someone cries out, oh my God, I mean, literally crying out to God as an instinct, what are they expecting to happen if they've always denied that there is a God of such power? I mean, it really is a ridiculous position. And I think it's sad when churches and Christians deny all the passages in the Bible that refer to supernatural powers, in the end, those churches just empty out of people. Because what are you left with? Well, you've got this concept, perhaps, of a grandfather God who just loves and accepts everybody and just wants his people to do a lot of good works on the earth in his name. But essentially, he's got no power to do anything. He can't change anything. Nor can he answer the deep longings of the human heart. You know, the Liberal Church of England in Great Britain took that route. You know, the average attendance today is 57. 
one bishop launched a campaign to bring people back by handing out bags of chocolates. We're going to lure them back to church with chocolate. They announced they were going to show comedy videos to celebrate the autumn harvest. Imagine cutting out miracles and the supernatural and teaching people there's no God who has that kind of power, and then you've got to get them back in church with sugar and comedy. Well, the Scripture presents the claim that the true and living God not only foretells events from the beginning, what will happen in the end, but He also has the power of miraculously bringing those things to pass. So when examining the question of how Jesus came to be associated with somewhere other than Bethlehem, the answer on the human level is that behind the scenes, at the highest levels of power, there was a plot in motion to murder him from his infancy, and so his family had to flee outside the borders. But secondly, behind all of that was the preserving divine hand of Almighty God. Now, in verse 23, the final piece of the puzzle is that he came and lived in a city of Nazareth so that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. The third part of the explanation is what I've already referred to, and that is Bible prediction. It's human persecution, that's part of the explanation. It's divine preservation, that's part of the explanation. But then it's also Bible prediction, that's the final piece of the explanation. Now Matthew clearly says that his living in Nazareth was the fulfillment of Scripture. But here's the thing. What specific prediction is Matthew referring to? It's very important to know because there's actually no specific statement in the Old Testament that the Messiah would live in the town of Nazareth. In fact... If you take a Bible concordance and check it out, you won't find Nazareth mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. You won't find that name in any of the 39 books of the Old Testament. Not only that, it's not even mentioned anywhere in the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha are other Jewish writings that are not part of Scripture, but in some cases they do record true history. The New Testament refers to the Apocrypha. But Nazareth is not mentioned there either. So that cannot be what Matthew is talking about. There's simply no prophet in particular who said that the Messiah would live in Nazareth, and yet Matthew refers to what was spoken by the prophets, and his association with Nazareth is the fulfillment of what they said. So we need to examine this just a little bit more closely this morning. Notice that Matthew says that it was spoken that he would be called, now note this, he would be called a Nazarene. Now I want to show you something. Look back at verse 5, where he quotes from Micah 5.2. What's the last word of verse 5? Prophet. See that? Look at verse 15, and it also says, through the prophet, referring to the prophet Hosea, who predicted that his son would come out of Egypt, then look at verse 17, with reference to the killing of babies in Bethlehem. It says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, 
But now look at verse 23. Compare those three verses with what he says now. What's the difference? Right. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. Plural. The first time in the chapter when something is the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures and the word prophet is now used in the plural. Now that helps us. Because it does suggest that Matthew really wasn't putting his finger on a specific prophet when he made this statement like he was with the other ones, quite obviously. The second thing I want to point out is this. While it was true that in Jesus' earthly ministry, he was referred to as Jesus the Nazarene or Jesus of Nazareth, something we already saw in the Gospel of John, meaning that he certainly did end up in Nazareth. He was known for that. It's apparent from those two passages, as well as from other events in the life of the Lord, that when people referred to him as the Nazarene, it wasn't just the geographical location they were referring to, but it was a put-down. In other words, it was spoken uh, derisively. It was spoken contemptuously. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the Nazarene. I mean, can anything good come out of Nazareth? As if, right? Now, there's a little background to that. For example, in our own country, before uh, political correctness took over, if someone said, that's a Westie, that is not a reference to the compass direction in which a person lived in Sydney. It was a comment on the kind of person they were. If someone says, well, he's a bogan, it's not a compliment or a badge of honor that it is today. It's a statement on where and how someone lives. If you're called a crow eater, where are they from? South Australia, thank you. The real Aussie, Lee, South Australia. <laughs> crow eaters. But it's not saying you're from South Australia. It's a, it's a put down. If you're a banana bender, you've lost your mind. Now you're in Queensland <laughs> where they don't have daylight savings. Right? It's not saying you're from Queensland as much as it's saying something about who you are. Okay, so on. Some of you can remember those snubs from the past, and this is precisely what was taking place in the first century. Uh, those who were people of power, well, they lived in the southern part of the country. Uh, that was around Jerusalem. That's David's city. That's the capital. It's right under the shadow of the temple. They have access to rabbis and rabbinical schools. Holy ground to the Jews right there. Up there in Galilee, well, now, that's where all the country bumpkins live. Samaria, well, that's all half-breeds. We don't even go up there. That's the Westies. <laughs> uh, you people are way out of the loop. You, you Galileans, you're all bogan fishermen, right? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So when Matthew says that his being in Nazareth will be a fulfillment of what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene, it's obvious that this is a contemptuous reference of the word Nazarene being used there rather than simply saying, well, yeah, you'll know the Messiah because you'll find him in Nazareth. You can take a right, two lefts, it's that, it's that village down there. No, you'll know the Messiah because he was being referred to derisively like that in association with growing up in Nazareth. That's why in people's minds, this was the big objection. 
I mean, Nazareth? That place? You kidding me? That kind of lowly... How can that be? And that reaction is precisely what many of the Old Testament prophets predicted. They predicted that he would be despised and rejected of men. What chapter is that? Isaiah 53. Psalm 69 actually said he'd become estranged from his own physical brothers. Verse 8 says, I've become a stranger to my brothers. I'm an alien to my mother's children. That's a messianic passage. And John 7, 5 records that when it came to Jesus, even his own brothers, the other sons of Mary and Joseph, his own brothers did not believe in him. Just think for a moment of the placard they placed on his cross. Now you've got to put all four gospel accounts together to get the full wording because none of them give the whole thing. But this is what Pilate wrote. It's Jesus, the Nazarene king of the Jews. That wasn't meant to be a compliment. That was a put down. I mean, here's that, here's that country bumpkin, the Nazarene who somebody actually thought was king of the Jews, hanging on the cross. That's why the Jews of that day walked by his cross, wagging their heads, sticking out their tongues, and taunting him with challenges. He trusted in God, let God deliver him. I mean, Jesus the Nazarene, what a joke. And although they had no intention of doing this, they were actually fulfilling Psalm 22. Perfectly. Listen to the words of the Messiah, verses 6 to 8. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Now, there are numerous other passages in addition to the ones I've given you where the Old Testament points ahead and it says, you know, one of the ways you're going to know God's Messiah is that he is going to be despised and rejected even by his own family. I mean, the people will mock him. They will challenge him. They will throw disparaging remarks against him. Remarks like Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, being called a Nazarene certainly wasn't identifying him geographically, but it was used in the common vernacular to refer condescendingly, to reject him. He was insignificant, like an ethnic slur. Uh, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s. Yes, I'm that old. Uh, I was a half Asian in the 70s and the 80s. So I suffered a lot of ridicule for my heritage. Uh, They would throw things out like chink, Chinaman, and I wore glasses, so I was four-eyed. You know, they squinted their eyes at me, and and they weren't politely pointing out that I had geographical ties with the nation of China. (laughs) They were ridiculing, they were bullying me. Well, imagine if they called Jesus, Jesus the Hick, Jesus the Bogan, right? It's the same idea, and that's exactly what the prophets predicted. His association with Nazareth, well, that just added fuel to the fire in the popular minds of those who despised him. There's one other passage I just want to look at, and then we're done. It's Isaiah 11. And this is a chapter that really moves you all the way from the birth of the Messiah to his universal future kingdom. I want to begin reading in the previous chapter, verse 33 of chapter 10. 
which says, Behold the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will lop off the bow with terror. Those of high stature will be hewn down, and the haughty will be humbled. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. Now, who's he referring to here? Well, he's actually referring to his own people, Israel. God is going to lop off the trunk of his own people, Israel, and he's comparing it here to lopping off the cedars of Lebanon. Now, these are mighty trees. Uh, They're famous for their size and strength, legendary trees. So God was going to fell the nation because Israel had gotten too proud for its own britches. They, They thought they had this high position of who they were, and they were untouchable. So God says, hey, it don't matter if you think you're a cedar of Lebanon because I'm going to cut you down. And he did in judgment on that nation. All right. When you cut down a tree, what's left? The stump. Chapter 11, verse 1. The story continues. But there shall come forth a rod. Now, the, the literal word here is shoot. It's a little sprig. A shoot will come forth from the stem of Jesse. So among all the nations, it's going to be the stem of that man that a little shoot is going to come forth. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. And in verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon who? Him. See that? So we know that the shoot we know that the branch is actually referring to a man. But what I'm interested in is the word branch in verse 1 because this is the Hebrew word Nazer, which is the exact same root as the word Nazareth. So what this passage is predicting is that the Messiah would initially be what you would never expect. Everyone, even Orthodox Jews today, are expecting somebody to be their Messiah who comes in great power and glory and conquering, and it's not going to be this inconspicuous little shoot. I mean, just think, just think of a little shoot coming out of a tree stump. About 15 years ago, we cut down some uh, trees at the front of our house in Quakers Hill. We were robbed because they were blocking our front door, and so we thought, let's show the front door. We had these trees cut down. Oh, I paid to have them cut down. But we never used a stump grinder to remove the stump and dig the roots out. So for many months, these little sprigs would shoot up out of the trunks that remained in the ground. Now, do you think that worried me? I think I'm lying in bed at night, scared that the whole thing's going to grow back again? No, of course not. You don't pay any attention to a sprig coming out of a tree trunk that was cut down. It's nothing. Well, after God cut the nation down like a great cedar tree, see, look, right there, there's a sprig coming out, a shoot. And then there's going to be the nazer, there's going to be the branch. The prophets say it. And they say that when he comes, he comes in that way with that kind of insignificance. He's going to be the kind of person that you easily dismiss as a nobody which is exactly what happened when Jesus of Nazareth came onto the scene. 
So what you have in Isaiah 11.1 1, and in other passages is one of those references that Matthew is pulling together with other references to say when Jesus lived in Nazareth and when they subsequently dismissed him as a Nazarene, it was in fulfillment of what many prophets spoke about when they referred to the contempt and disdain that people would have for him And this is how he came to be associated with Nazareth and why we call him, of all things, Jesus of Nazareth to this day. Now, of course, you've never had a problem calling him that, have you? But then you weren't born a Jew. And if you were, it's unlikely you were raised in an Orthodox home because you wouldn't be in a Protestant church today. (laughs) That's for sure. But here's the evidence. And Matthew 2 is really held out by God to those people for their consideration. In other words, if if they're doing the right thing when they search the Scriptures, when they search them, they're going to quickly find out that the place of his birth was Bethlehem. All right, that's recorded in Matthew. That you can easily find. But when they say, you know, why do you Christians accept somebody as the Messiah and he's not associated? Why isn't he Jesus the Bethlehemite? Why do you keep calling him Jesus the Nazareth? How could he be the Messiah? Well, there's an explanation for that in the chapter as well. Now, one final application for those of us who are believers. I want to turn the page just a little bit as we come to a close. If you associate yourself with Jesus of Nazareth, you will end up being associated with his reproach. This has become a lost concept in Western countries because as far as we have known in our lifetimes, we've all enjoyed the freedom of religion. There's a large part of Christianity today that bears no reproach because they've created a kind of Christianity that only celebrates and laughs and believes that God wants them to be healthy and wealthy, and so they take the world, they conquer it for themselves. It's a kind of Christianity that is acceptable, that presumes on the grace of God and turns people loose to nearly anything that they lust after, and it's all covered by grace, and it creates churches that are all positive energy, that are worldly, except for the you know, 10-minute motivational speech on the platform where they might throw out a couple of Bible verses, mostly taken out of context. I know I'm being a little cynical, but there is a kind of Christianity like that which bears almost no reproach at all. In fact, it considers any reproach to be outside the will of God. But if you search the Scriptures and you intend on following the same narrow path that Jesus of Nazareth walked, you will find that the more scriptural you are, the more reproach you will bear. And some of that reproach will even come from those who call themselves Christians. Christians by name who will not submit to anything they find unacceptable in the Bible. Old pastor used to say, the closer you walk with the Lord the more you find yourself walking alone. And there's some truth in that, I think, for all of us to meditate on this morning. Because this has always been God's way. It's told in the prophets. Let's bow for prayer.